All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, and uh, that is the go-to sola, sola scriptura verse. And uh, But is that limited, ladies and gentlemen, to the King James Bible only? No, I think not. Uh, yeah, well, we're going to be <clears throat> discussing a little bit of that today with a first-time guest, a uh, author of the book titled Authorize the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. But before we introduce him, I'm your host, Julio Madrid. Rodriguez and across from me is the AW and I forgot where are we coming out we're, we're, we're coming at you from the great state of Texas Texas yeah and that is the AW Varilla always <laughs> always doing that and to the right of me I have the Presidente Mr. Steve Den Hartog hello everybody good to be with you here today well I wanted to talk a little bit about our experience um, encountering King James onlyest um, for me, it's kind of a little bit of a kind of like a what, what do you call it? Like a, you know, I've never seen a unicorn before. I hear about them, but then one time I actually came uh, came across a one, and it was it was a little strange. Uh, we had a disagreement, but then we, after we we shook hands and and we we went our separate ways. So oh yeah, we're still brothers in Christ, but yeah, there's some different different perspective there. Yeah, yeah. Abe, you. I mean, I think the the subject is very interesting to me. Um, I. I listen to a lot of James White on the subject, uh, mm-hmm. just because uh, he's always battling Steve Anderson. Yeah. Uh, so I'm super excited to have uh, Mark Ward on and getting his perspective on it. And yeah, on um, the two. And I, I like reading the Jean- King James. I do. We're not uh, opposed to it here. Yeah. Uh, I'll do my um, my morning devotionals in the Old Testament in it, but again, as it is a good translation. Um, there's a lot of wackiness into it Kenji. comes along with it. Yeah, that yeah, and that's so. what I appreciate about Mark Ward. And I think I'm I'm looking forward to this this podcast. Yeah. I think there's a lot of balance in what he talks about. You know, talking about the advantages of the King James. I mean, yeah. there is a certain degree of grandeur. You know, there is there, and uh, so. Yeah, there's a beauty that the ESV and NASB just doesn't carry, and and what I'm talking about specifically is more of the way that is written, yeah. the way that it sounds. But my encounter with the King James Onlyest was at a Starbucks, and mm. he had told me well, that's that, your first problem is Starbucks. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I worry at Bridge. I was in Houston, man. I was, I was in Houston. Coffee, pagan but coffee. But <laughs> he, when he told me that the only authoritative word of God was in English, and it was the King James Bible, my mind it was like a shotgun hit me mentally. Yeah. I was like, wait, hold on, wait a second. So you're telling me that people who do not speak uh, English like they're just kind of English yeah yeah exactly they're completely left out so it's it was just a strange discussion that was the only encounter I've had with the King James only and again I'm not, I'm not opposed to the to the King James Bible but but that's it anyway guys well we are bridge radio we are bridge ministries we are a uh, uh, we're out of the great state of Texas Texas again and uh, we are a reformed <laughs> Christian bookstore uh, teaching ministry and coffee shop and you can subscribe to this podcast if you're enjoying it already we're on all the major podcast mm. platforms you could download us on on uh, at the bridge app 
uh, just go to the App Store, Bridge Ministries, and uh, you type in, uh, you'll see our name, slogan, Coffee and Good News, and you could uh, continue listening there from here on out. So. And a shout out to our international listeners again. Thank you very much for listening to Bridge Radio. Yes, share. Yeah, send us an email too, wherever you are in the in the world. Yes. Especially outside of the U.S. Send, yes. us, a, send us an email or something. We'd love yeah. to hear from you guys. Yeah, that would be great. JulioBridgeman at Gmail. Dot com. You can catch you, you catch us catch us catch me there. All right, Abe, Steve, we ready? Let's do this. Let's all, do it. all right. So he is a first time guest. Mark Ward received his PhD in New Testament interpretation from Bob Jones University in 2012. He now serves the church as a Logos Pro at Faith Life, writing weekly articles on Bible study at the Logos Talk blog. He is the author of multiple high school. Bible textbooks, including the story of the Old Testament and biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption. His most recent book is Authorized, the book we're going to be talking about today, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Ward, for joining us for the first time. It's a pleasure to serve you and your listeners. Well, um, since you are a new guest, we always like to uh, first start off by kind of uh, talking a little bit about yourself, and uh, and it would be cool if you kind of could kind of give a testimony of how you came to Saving Faith. Sure. Um, well, let's see. I'm the only redheaded author of a book about the King James Version in Skagit <laughs> County, Washington, that I know of. <laughs> That's um, great. I do work for Faith Life Makers of Logos Bible Software. I I was just pinching myself yesterday, sitting in a meeting with other Bible nerds, talking about principles for literal English Bible translation for a project that we're working on. Uh, I'm uh, I'm part of a team that works on stuff that Faith Life is producing, kind of on its own for our own products. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just so grateful to the Lord for what I get to do. I'm called to teach Bible. I am described by that one word, I think, in Ephesians 4, where God, through Christ, gives to Christ's church pastors and teachers. That's me. I also do a little bit of pastoring, that type work on the side, uh, sort of as an assistant. Um, my wife and three children live here in beautiful Skagit County, Washington, with me, not far from Bellingham, where the headquarters of Faith Life are. And I guess uh, if I had to say how I came to Christ, it was through the means through which I hope my children come to Christ. In a way, there's never been a day in which I didn't know Christ. Um, Of course, I believe in conversion and regeneration. So yes, there was a time when I wasn't regenerated and now I am, but I don't know when that day was. Mm -hmm. I professed faith in Christ when I was four. And, you know, I didn't really understand it. I remember as a seven-year-old, maybe eight-year-old, just kind of dawning on me, vicarious atonement. Of course, I didn't even know those words, but I understood Christ taking my punishment. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 14 or 15, I think is when I first recall sort of having independent affections for Christ and his word and for prayer. And I can say that progressive sanctification by God's grace has occurred since then. Um, I know and love the Lord more now than I did then, and I hope to say the same in another 20 years. That's my testimony. Awesome. Praise God. Praise God. Well, I, just since you're a, a Logos representative, I, I just want to say that besides Amazon, Logos is probably the hardest website to go on for me. Because <laughs> I, I go and I just want to buy every single commentary and book, and y'all all y'all just have great deals. <laughs> and I always, got, I always get a guy, Jim, calling me to see if I want to add to my library. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 
I really believe in the product. You know, I actually, two months before they called me to see if I'd work there, a friend of mine said, you know, you should go work for Logos. And I said, I'll never do that. Um, but he said that for the reasons that I ultimately came, which was, I love it myself. I use it myself. Yeah. I looked at my own like purchase history. And uh, when I came to the company, I can look at my own account and I yeah. saw, wow, I spent over 3000 bucks. Like, how <laughs> did I do that? You guys... I'm so grateful. It, it got me through a dissertation without having to go to the library every yeah. two seconds. Seriously. And I use it all the time. Yeah. Well, well, you guys make it easy for sure because I just have my credit card already like stored <laughs> in there and I just got to press one button and then there you go. That's it. You have Sanctified purchased. Sanctified consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> so great. good. That's so good. All right. So let's, yeah, let's jump into your book. I, I've been uh, reading a couple of chapters and skimming through it. I, I, I love in the very front of the, the book, uh, D.A. Carson just says, highly recommended. And when D.A. speaks, he speaks. Yes. So, <laughs> so you listen. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's been fun to read but i, I want to start off with uh with um a simple question and that's just asking you how did the king james bible become what it is and then also knowing that there were prior older translations including you know the geneva bible and the Wycliffe translation in other words just why the king james how come it's it's so famous yeah rod decker who is a late um, New Testament scholar, very conservative Christian that I knew personally. I did his website, ntresources.com, many years ago. He wrote a paper which I felt made a really simple but excellent point. We accord all these superlatives to the King James Version, and I myself do love it. It is filling my head and heart to this day, you know, 30 years after my Awana leaders first started making me memorize these things and giving me trinkets in exchange, I got more value than just those trinkets. I, I still love the King James. Um, but the reason it is accorded these superlatives of literary beauty is not merely because it is literarily beautiful, although that's true. It's because of sort of an accidental, though I would say providential, confluence of circumstances, namely that pretty well the only nation that spoke English at the time, about the size of the state of Pennsylvania, had an absolute monarch at its head who had the power to say, this is the Bible the state church is going to use. And although there were uh, Puritans and others even on the continent who spoke English and used the Geneva Bible, that power of the monarch proved to be sufficient to unseat the Geneva Bible and the King James predecessors like the Bishop's Bible, of which it's his revision, and Tyndall, his, uh, his translation of not quite the entire Bible. And of course, Wycliffe from, you know, several hundred years prior, which wasn't even really the same English. Uh, and because of that, you know, cultural cohesion created by having an absolute monarch, we got one common standard. Not every country has had that. Mm. Uh, and, and today we no longer have that. And even if there were an evangelical pope like a Billy Graham who said, everyone should use this version, it just wouldn't happen. We have lost the day when anyone has the power to create a standard. But I'm glad we did have a standard for a long time, and the King James served that role well. Yeah, that's great. That's very interesting. Can you talk about some of the things that the church loses by not using the King James Version of the Bible. For example, we have kind of four points outlined here um, that I'd appreciate if you would talk about a little bit. Number one being the intergenerational ties that we have in the body through the King James Version. Scripture memory. A lot of people 
quite honestly grew up with the yeah. with the script uh, with the uh, King James version and have that uh, have that memory and uh, also the cultural touchstones that uh, the King James version brings to our culture and then also the implicit trust on behalf of both Christians and non-Christians um, that we have in the King James version so maybe if you could if you could just kind of talk about each one of those first being the intergenerational ties in the body sure i grew up using the king james version and i in the book quote russell moore as giving a story that you know i could give too he talks about going to his grandmother's deathbed and singing songs with her hymns of his childhood that are still sung today but perhaps less than they used to be Hmm. and he he laments that that's a loss um, he says the same, really, about the King James. There are some times when he preaches from and reads the King James Version precisely because it links him to his Baptist forebears, including, I think he said, like, his grandfather might have been a preacher. That wasn't true of me. My my grandfathers were not, to my knowledge, regenerated people. But my forefathers in the faith used the King James Version, and when I use and read the same wording— I do feel a tie to them, um, not least through reading their books and seeing them make even casual allusions to King James verbiage. Mm-hmm. There's something kind of neat about um, the fact that the King James uses a, uh, a different variety of, en- variety of English than ours. That means that when you make an allusion to it, like I saw an art- a writer did, he, he just used the phrase, much every way, and it immediately called up the King James Version for me in mm. Romans. Um, that's, uh, that's a way, of one of many, of drawing a culture and a community, a Christian community, together. And my first chapter lists things like this that are losses. You know, as, as the King James ceases to be the common standard for English-speaking Christianity, despite vehement protestations from those who'd like to keep it, it is happening, and they know that too. Yes, we're losing at least this one tie, a very important one that has kept generations, you know, speaking sure. the same scriptural language. Uh, and that's very literally the case when it comes to scripture memory. You asked about that, and I talk mm. about that in the book too. Yeah. This is one of the leading things that I hear from those um, who tell me we've got to hold on to the King James in churches. They say we need a common standard so that we can do scripture memory. It's just a practical thing, they'll say to me. And I think they have a really good point. Mm -hmm. I think that when the entire English-speaking Christian church is using the same translation, kids like me end up memorizing verses well, you know, kind of by accident. Like right. one of the examples I, I have in my book is First um, Kings eighteen oh twenty one. Um, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow Him; but if Baal, then follow Him. Mm. Not sure I got that word perfectly, but I got to thinking. You know, where did I memorize that? I don't think that was in a verse. It doesn't really <laughs> make sense for cubbies, right? So or sparks. Um, I think that I just heard enough sermons on it and heard it referenced, and it just just kind of stuck. Sure. And that doesn't happen as readily if some people in the Christian community are citing the NIV, others the ESV, others the NASB. Sure. And the church has a harder time just, uh, you know, reciting Scripture memory verses together if the pastor leads them to do that. Yeah, sure. those are genuine losses. 
I already feel like I've talked too much, even though I didn't answer all four. So let me just stop and you guys say something, and then I'll give the other two. No, I think I think uh, the, like the scripture memory. I think that there's something to the grandeur of the King James version that lends itself to scripture memorization. You know that maybe we don't yeah. have with other translations. It's kind of like uh, memorizing poetry. You know, you kind of. I think it makes it a little bit easier to mm-hmm. put into the memory banks because of of the language. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Ward, I wanted to ask you too, even just with today, you've named, we have the ESV, the NASB, we have, you know, the CBS, I think is another one. Do you ever, do you think that we could go to a too far of an extreme and have like too many translations? Well, yes and no. I wrote an article that I actually haven't published anywhere. um, And I'm thankful I didn't. I'll tell you why in a minute. But it says, basically, we need to stand athwart the modern uh, production of Bible translations in English and say, stop. That's quoting a famous William F. Buckley statement Mm -hmm. from decades ago. Uh, However, now I'm involved in a project here at Faith Life in which we are doing precisely that. So it's a good thing I didn't publish that article. (laughs) Here's why I am inconsistent there. Um, I would say, in general, yes, we have enough. Uh-huh. And it is possible for there to be too many um, because a rising tide can sink all boats just a little bit. When mm-hmm. there's a lot of translations, people start to assume, and I've seen this especially among non-Christians, but also among Christians, you know, that people know that they don't read Greek and Hebrew. So at some level, they're, they're going to have to trust somebody. Yeah. And when they see so many different translations coming from different outfits and apparently from different theologies, it's understandable that they would think, oh, this translation probably serves the ideology of the people who produced it. So sure, the right. CSB has probably got some stuff that's going to you know, uh, support the Southern Baptist Convention's viewpoint on stuff like yeah. gender or baptism or whatever. And the ESV is sort of associated with the Reformed resurgence. So yeah, they probably have a complementarian and soteriologically Reformed bias. And the NIV is, you know, sort of the centrist translation. So it's probably, you know, down the middle. But it's, there's too much interpretation in it. I mean, people are agenda sniffers in this postmodern era. And mm-hmm. it kind of does look bad when we have so many. However, Here's what I've been trying to say to people, to try to just free up their consciences the way mine is, um, to, to use multiple translations. Many years ago, I grew up in King James-only circles. I had a largely good experience. My um, Christian school teachers in that King James-only Christian school loved me. They are still my friends, especially two of them read the book. Um, I'm grateful for what I received there, very grateful, to be honest. Um, but my conscience was definitely bound to the King James Version. And as that started to change under a new pastor I had at a different church when I went to college, um, I started to use multiple translations. I bought for $50, this is $1999, which is more like $75 today. I don't know where I got this money. I bought a comparative study Bible with four different translations in it. I have it sitting on my shelf right now. And I over and over and over and over and over and over and over again compared the NIV, the King James, uh, the Amplified Bible, and the New American Standard. I didn't tend to use the Amplified Bible as much, but the three main ones, NASB, King James, and NIV, I used over and over again. And over and over and over again, I found that comparing these you know, very literal NASB translation, not so literal NIV translation, and kind of literal King James, helped me understand 
I understood better what Solomon was saying in Proverbs and what Paul was saying in Romans and what Jude was saying in Jude. And I just couldn't get upset anymore about the existence of multiple Bible translations when it was helping me so much. And I'm afraid that we've got people who are all exercised about the confusion that supposedly arises from having multiple translations when if they would just give it a chance that this embarrassment of riches might actually help them and the people in their church understand, then they could see this rather than uh, a dark cloud. They could see it as pretty well all silver lining. Like, what a great problem to have. Right. We've got multiple angles helping us understand God's Word. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. So can you talk a little bit now about... uh, well, the cultural touchstone that we lose with the uh, with the King James Version not being as widely used as it as it has been in the past. Yeah. Now, Shakespeare is a cultural touchstone, and I dare say that among all four of us, we probably I'm just guessing here haven't read as much Shakespeare as we sort of feel culturally obligated to do. Um, (laughs) Yeah. As my English teacher wanted me to. To be or not to be. (laughs) Yeah. But how did you know that phrase, to be or not to be? Yeah. It's just in the cultural air. Absolutely. And that's true of the New York Times writers who regularly make allusions to Shakespeare without probably having read and actually sat down to memorize it all. You know, there are just these phrases that make it into the cultural lexicon. Well, of course, the same has happened for the King James Bible. And I found it interesting over time. I've seen secular writers, you know, didn't grow up on scripture at all, who decided out of cultural obligation at some point to read through the King James Bible. And they suddenly realize, oh, the skin of his teeth. Oh, that comes from Job. And that happens repeatedly to them. Um, That that cultural touchstone and those phrases, you know, I think are necessarily going to fade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's a value that, well, yeah, if, if I could keep that, I'd like to. But if that value, which is a genuine value, it's a good thing. I'd like to hold on to it. I like my culture, broadly speaking. I know the fall has twisted it in many ways, but this is one way in which it's good. If that value competes with the value of understanding what God said because it's translated into my English, then I know which one needs to win. And that is the argument of my book. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the cultural touchstone is valueless. I'm saying that there's a more important value, scripturally speaking, that we ought to hold on to. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Finally, point number four, can you talk a little bit about the implicit trust, both on behalf of Christians and non-Christians, that we lose with, uh, with the not having the KGV um, read as much as, as it was before? Yeah, I think I sort of stumbled into this a little bit earlier yeah. when I said that a rising tide sinks all boats a little, and I could just, just give the example of Christopher Hitchens. Um, famous atheist who, just as famously among the Christian community, because of Larry Alex Taunton's book, you know, seems to have been considering the claims of Christ in a serious and even perhaps humble, uncharacteristically humble way for him toward the end of his life. Um, He said in a Vanity Fair article, which was really profound, he's such an awesome writer, he said um, that the there's a new babble that arises when there are all these new bibles mm. and he as an atheist this is kind of weird you know preferred just having the one standard so we at least we know the faith that we're rejecting that's kind of what he's saying hmm. 
and he looks at editions of the Bible, like the you know the U.S. Uh, the Patriots Bible and the you know Bible for firefighters and the Bible <laughs> for couples and the Women's Study Bible, and uh. he thinks they're all different translations. Understandably, it's not his beef. I mean, his yeah. uh, his brief. And he thinks, well, people are just twisting the Bible to serve their agenda. And again, I think because we have so many Bibles out there on the Christian bookstore shelves, and then especially when Christians fight about them on the Internet and non-Christians, you know, can listen in because it's social media, it does does look bad. And that's a downside. That is something we're losing. If we had a common standard, we'd be missing at least this one fight. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and just with the fighting, because, um, I, I mean, we've come across it here in everybody's like NASB or King James or ESV, best translation. Um, you know, they're always pinning each other. Um, I guess I'm just, where do we, where can we have, like, just uh, friendly discussion about just these different translations and, and versions without... Uh, getting it just too far, um, and I, I just wonder because we we do see that on social media, and I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, this brings up so many thoughts. Um, you know, the number one easy answer is you can't have that discussion on social media. That's the mm. last place you can have a kind discussion. Yeah. Um, but I have seen um, on Facebook there are groups where they're kind of self-selected. And you can have a discussion because it's not really public. It's, you know, private within a group of a manageable size that can happen. Um, but I've been giving a lot of thought to what is what is the moral responsibility of people, Christians, who fight over Bible translations on social media? And there's a couple scriptural passages that have come to mind. One is a Greek word. And I'll hazard this here. Lagamachia is word fights. Quarrels about words is how it's often translated. I don't remember how the King James translates it. Um, And I see that sometimes. And Paul says, stay away from that. Mm -hmm. So if he says, stay away from that, and yet we're doing it, then we're sinning. And let's just acknowledge that a good bit of the discussion about Bible translation online is sin. Not all of it, but a good bit of it. Mm. And then I also think of the fruits, or sorry, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. I was just going over this passage, trying to uh, summarize it for sixth graders in a project I'm writing for BJU Press, a sixth grade worldview textbook I'm excited about. And the among that list are, are five or maybe even six, depending on how you count, words that are focused on division. Divisions, dissensions, strife, enmity, and that these are listed in the works of the flesh, and there were basically an equivalent amount of words focused on dissension as those words in that list, this vice list, focused on sexual immorality. So we don't do our exegesis by word counting, by nose counting, but right. I do find it very interesting that sexual immorality is obviously a massive problem, and it's a sin against your own body. And then in this vice list, dissension and factions, heresies, sects are right at the top of Paul's mind. So people who fight about this online, I think a lot of them are guilty of violating this passage. And of course they're going to say, well, we're standing for the truth. We're contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. And and so this is what drove me as I wrote my book. I was thinking, okay, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ who are King James only or who just strongly prefer it. 
Um, I think that many of them can be won over despite sort of the, the uh, infamous irascibility of King James onlyism online. Um, so how do I approach them? I can't talk about textual criticism because the great majority of them have not been given opportunity by God to study textual criticism. How can we possibly have a debate about this that doesn't devolve into my authority is better than your authority? How can I appeal to them in a way that, uh, you know, uh, make an argument that they can genuinely follow and go back and forth with me on? And so I don't hold people morally responsible for responsible for being wrong about textual criticism. I have my own viewpoint. I'm willing to defend it. I think it's faithful to scripture and to history. Um, but I actually really don't care if other people, other brothers in Christ disagree with me on that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where I think people are morally responsible. And this is why I wrote the book that I did. First Corinthians 14 says, edification requires intelligibility. If you use words and syntax and punctuation, all the features of language that people cannot understand or will necessarily misunderstand, when you have uh, intelligible words available, that's wrong. And by insisting that we use a translation that for all its good value, nonetheless has reached the stage because of language change, that it's not fully intelligible, people are creating divisions and this is a fruit of a work of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's great yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's that was really point. good. Um, uh, Dr. Ward, in Chapter 5 of your book, uh, The Value of the Vernacular, can you define what vernacular means to our uh, our audience here that don't know the term? Yeah, and that the answer to that question is implicit in what I just said edification requires intelligibility. Mm. Vernacular English is the English we all know we speak. Okay, a language is a group of people who agree to understand one another. (laughs) There are places in the world where two coexisting cultures hate each other so much that they won't acknowledge that they actually speak the same language. (laughs) they, They don't agree to understand one another. Well, that's not the situation we have in English. Here, here's the thing. When, when you, if you handed King James English to someone and said, edit this, make it sound like today's English, pretty well nobody would have any problem recognizing the deviations from standard contemporary English that the King James makes. Mm. I don't think all of those deviations are, um, you know, insurmountable. Thee and thou and ye are really not hard to learn. Putting ETH on the ends of verbs, you know, he that now letteth will let is not that difficult to get over. You know, I certainly got over it before I was reading. I was hearing these things and understanding them. Um, But I've always known that's not the way I talk. What I did not fully perceive until I got deeper into Greek and Hebrew myself and therefore started to see places where I was misunderstanding the King James I didn't see that language changes in ways that are more subtle than I was aware of. It really isn't just that we've got some of this archaic, you know, uh, pronoun and verb ending uh, stuff going on in the King James. Word meanings and syntax and punctuation and other features of language have changed in many ways that are actually going to be misleading to today's readers through no fault of their own and through no fault of the King James translators. I don't say a single critical word about the King James translators' decisions in my book. I just don't need to. That's not the point. 
Nobody's a dummy for misunderstanding. Um, but if we want to understand, then the the language that we're going to use in preaching, in evangelism, in Bible memory, and in Bible translation is our English, the vernacular, what we're taught at our mother's knee, what we learn in school, standard, in our case, American English. That's the vernacular. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so why um, why wouldn't um, us as, in, in just our common today uh, English v- vernacular have, uh, and I like the way you use this word, anointed, why wouldn't we have an anointed language such as you know, Latin or English or a translation like the Vulgate or the KJV? Uh, and in fact, why didn't we keep it just in the Hebrew and, and the Greek? I am not opposed to a culture and even a church culture which has exalted language. I love the old hymns. Our church is very traditional and very conservative. I lead the music every Sunday, and I make sure that we include plenty of old hymns, some of which um, have language that is more like King James English. I, I always stop and explain things if I think they'll be misunderstood, and I'm Mm. not averse at all to editing hymns. If there's um, language that just really cannot be understood without explanation, I think that violates 1 Corinthians 14. Um, So some people who read my book are thinking that I'm just trying to dumb down all of our discourse in the Christian church, and that just ain't true. Mm. I love English. I love to read uh, the King James Version. I enjoy Shakespeare. I think that the problem is not the mere existence of exalted English in our services. It's putting that English in the mouth of God in such a way that sort of becomes normative. Here's an example. Um, One of my assistant pastors back in South Carolina, where I was at church for 18 years, highly recommended and sold in the bookstore these children's Bible story hour um, uh, audio recordings that I think come from the 70s. And we've been listening to them on our way to church with our three kids for, boy, it's been, you know, about two years, and we're working our way slowly through them. We pretty well reserve them for Sundays. And they're really well done. It's pretty neat. They're a little corny because of the 70s production values, you know, you just kind (laughs) of sense it. But here's something we've noticed. They are willing in these stories to fictionalize elements, you know, add um, sort of subplots to some of the stories, you know, add dialogue that isn't in the Bible. Mm. Um, and I think that's totally okay. You know, it's understandable in order to put the the stories in that medium, you have to do some of that. But here's what they're unwilling to do. They're unwilling to alter the King James verbiage whenever they do quote the Bible. They're, it's just got the sacrosanct character. Mm. And so you have this really awkward juxtaposition of things they're willing to change and things they aren't. And here's my my kids who actually, you know, I think especially my oldest, he's nine, is he's really good at reading. He's a voracious reader, but they're using verbiage that he's just not going to get. And certainly my four-year-old is not going to get. Um, they have they have sort of baptized this language as if it's inviolable even at the cost of their main audience understanding the point, understanding the story. I'll have mm. to stop it sometimes and say, kids, did you did you get that? Right. And I'll explain it to mm. my nine-year-old, my seven-year-old, mm. and my four-year-old. I had a King James-only person who is a missionary in an undisclosed location. 
uh, undisclosed because he's no longer King James only, and he's wondering, what in the world do I do because all my supporting churches are King James only? This is a very mm-hmm. difficult position for some people to be in. Mm-hmm. I urge them to have integrity, but I also understand it might need to be a process here. He said to me, once he changed his value, his central value in this whole debate from the preservation of the sanctity of of, uh, of the King James to understanding what God said, it just recast mm. everything for him. Wow. Yeah, that's good. And I've thought of that so many times. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting, especially considering the fact that, you know, the, the New Testament, for example, was written in a Greek that— that everybody could understand, you know, yeah. written in Koine Greek for the purpose of making sure that it was understood yeah. by the general population. So yeah, the word the word Koine just means common. It's yeah. something that people had in common. And when the King James translators, when they wrote a preface to the King James version, they used the equivalent word in English at that time when they said, "We want the Bible to be understood of." the very vulgar. Mm-hmm. We would say we want the Bible to be understood by, not of, the common people. Right. There's a good example of how, okay, okay, vulgar doesn't mean what it used to mean. Right. Most people tend to recognize that. Some things are, some changes are more subtle. But that, that was a value held by the translators that comes down to them from Tyndall and ultimately from the Bible itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and God could have chosen highfalutin literary language. And in some books, Hebrew, Hebrews, Luke and Acts, and certainly the Old Testament poetry, the language is more difficult, but it was recognizably current. It wasn't archaic. Right. And so we should do the same in our translations. Yeah. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit, too, about just the Bible and the vernacular translation, especially with the Septuagint, um, and just kind of that that biblical argumentation there for having, you know, different translations? Yeah, the the Septuagint is, of course, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made prior to the time of Christ um, uh, in in about the century before Christ. And it's a pretty fuzzy, it's a a hot area of study right now, and it's pretty nerdy and fun. And it does provide some insights into especially the history of the Hebrew Old Testament and some places where they have textual variants. Um, I find it really interesting, and actually yesterday at, at the offices at Lexham, we were talking about the Lexham English Septuagint, which we're planning to put out in a beautiful print edition. And after this interview, today I'm going to spend some time, Lord willing, going over some of the revision work that we're doing. So I value the Septuagint. And one of the reasons I do is that the New Testament writers themselves valued it. It was their Bible. For Greek-speaking Jews, this was the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And I find this so interesting. The the modern King James only movement consistently talks as if the um, the King James is itself perfect, and it's all important to them that we have a perfectly accurate translation, or we don't have God's words at all. We can't trust any of it if we can't trust all of it. Mm-hmm. And I understand the impulse; I really do. I would love to have a perfect translation too. It's not really possible unless God inspires it, though. And that's what the King James translator said. They said it takes inspiration to have a perfect translation, and they were saying we're not inspired. We're just trying to make a good translation better. They also said, take a look at the Septuagint particularly the portions of it that the New Testament writers quote. And they said, the Septuagint is not a perfect translation, and yet the New Testament writers quote it because they know it's what the Jewish people to whom they're writing 
and you know giving Christian apologetics. It's what they trust. Hmm. And if they made their own translation of the Hebrew Bible, which yeah might have been more accurate. Of course, if they're writing under inspiration, it would have been. Nonetheless, their intended audience would have said, "You only change that translation in order to make it say what you wanted to say." So the issue of translation trust has been around for a long, long time. It's always been there, and the King James translators recognized it, and we can recognize it today too. Um, I think thinking through what is the Septuagint and how do the New Testament writers use it is a helpful corrective to some of the, you know, folk theology that's developed around Bible translation, especially in King James-only circles. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you, going on to some of the objections with regards to the uh, vernacular translations, the common vernacular translations that we have nowadays, can you talk a little bit about some of those objections. For example, uh, one, one that is often given is that the King James Version is a faithful, literal transa- translation, and all other translations are paraphrases. And kind of along with that, uh, that the modern translations are based on corrupted Greek and Hebrew texts. You asked two separate questions that I would like to keep entirely separate. Sure and that the King James only movement and my brothers and sisters there, and I'm just gonna say this in all honesty, they always, always conflate those two questions. Mm -hmm. I wrote my book in order in part to divorce those two questions. I think they are to be kept utterly separate. And I have had zero success (laughs) in getting my brothers in that world to keep the questions apart. Hmm. Um, I'm not putting them down. I am just reporting what has happened to me in the year or so since my book has released and the documentary that's also based on the book. Same thing. Um, here's why they're separate. You can use, you can have a translation of the very same Greek and Hebrew words that the King James translators translated from and you can put it into contemporary English. In fact, that is exactly what the New King James translators did now nearly 40 years ago, and what the modern English version translators did in just the last few years. That tends to come from the charismatic wing of the church and and be used there, but the committee was actually made up of more than just charismatics. So here are two major live options with beautiful additions endorsed by various trusted people. Um, There are study Bibles available, and you can have a translation of the very same Greek and Hebrew words used by the King James translators, and you can have it in your English. So if that's true, then we don't need to talk about textual criticism in order to make the argument that the King James Version is no longer um, no longer meeting the 1 Corinthians 14 test of edification requires intelligibility, okay? Mm. And if someone does disagree with me over textual criticism, you know, that's the art and science of looking at all these ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and Hebrew Bible and trying to determine when they differ, which one is most likely to be original. We can disagree about that, and yet we can agree on the central premise of my book, which is that we ought to read Bible translations, ought to have and make Bible translations in our English and not someone else's. Um, I wanted to have that debate, and and it, I've, I've really just not succeeded unless I've gone ahead and persuaded someone completely. What I can't find is someone who defends the um, the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek New Testament edition used by the King James translators. This is a longer discussion. Yeah, the TR. But uh, I can't, 
I can't, the TR, yeah. I can't find someone who defends the TR and doesn't also defend the King James Version. And I, and I find that quite interesting. Um, I really don't think that there would be um, a TR-only movement if there were no King James-onlyism. I think the TR position has grown out of the King James-only position. Um, and I, I have respected intelligent friends who are offended by that statement, and I do not mean to cast aspersions on their integrity. I really don't. Uh, in fact, I want to say I honor the people who say to me that, yes, I recognize that King James is not perfect. I um, I know that we can't claim inspiration for a translation, and that's why I'm focused on defending the Textus Receptus. I, I understand that that's a healthy move away from a Ruckmanite style of King James onlyism. But until I meet more people who prefer the Textus Receptus and use the New King James Version or the Modern English Version, I just can't help but see that my brothers there are conflating text and translation unhelpfully. And therefore, I just made a vow. I've made three vows in my life. One was to my wife, a set of vows. Uh, another is I won't vote for a pro-abortion politician. That's where I draw the line. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third one is, and this is just to remind me of how serious this is, I will not argue about textual criticism with someone who insists on the exclusive use of the King James Version. Mm -hmm. That is not the issue. I, I don't mind if they disagree. I do mind if they disagree about English translation because 1 Corinthians 14 says edification requires intelligibility. We could go way deeper into textual criticism. I do it. I've written the cover story for the Bible study magazine this past uh, July or August or September. I can't remember now. was all about that. I wrote it. It was lots of fun. I have a whole website dedicated to um, the differences between the the critical text underlying modern translations and the Textus Receptus underlying the King James New Testament. The site is kjvparallelbible.org. I'm not trying to avoid this issue, um, but I don't see it getting making any headway on it with our brothers who are King James only. I think we've got to take the debate and focus it on English. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit just briefly with regards to the uh, texts that the modern translations are based on and why we would not consider those to be corrupted Greek, Greek and Hebrew texts, like the, the original manuscripts um, that the, the uh, modern translations are based on that uh, are other than the King James Version. Yeah, I understand why this is alarming to lay Christians. And yes, if I were God, I say this very humbly and with great fear, you know, I, you know, would I have given us this situation? Boy, that's a tough one. Hmm. But, you know, that focuses, focuses us on this question. What situation did God give us? Here's the situation he gave us. We have countless New Testament manuscripts. Well, I say countless. There are un, um, on the order of about 6,000 of varying sizes. Some are large, some are just scraps of paper from, you know, many centuries ago. Uh, it's similar but different for the Old Testament. It's easier for me to focus on the New Testament right now. That's more my area of specialty. So I'll just focus on the New Testament. Um, what do we do given the fact that no two of these manuscripts of the Greek New Testament of any significant length are exactly the same? 
there are all these, I would say, minor variations and a few more significant ones. The ones that everybody knows are John 7:53 to 8:11, which is the woman caught in adultery. Hmm. Uh, the so-called longer ending of Mark, and to even call it that indicates what my position is. And First John 5:7. There's a couple other smaller passages. I just ran across one in preaching just the other day, uh, and I did mention it. And here's why I mentioned it in my sermon. You know, with kids sitting in there, I bring up this academic issue. I think that. Christian people need to know about uh, need to know this fact that God has not given us a situation in which all Greek New Testament manuscripts agree. Hmm. So either we have to use our best lights guided by the Bible and by our reason um, to to go through these and make the choices that seem best according to principles established by those who study these things, or we have to anoint one manuscript for each book uh, because they don't tend to all come together and say this is the one and this one's perfect and nothing else is so i'm a preacher of the word i preached on sunday while my head pastor was gone i tell you i fear to stand before god's people and say thus saith the lord and have him say uh you know i didn't actually say that Mm -hmm. what i'd say to my tr only brothers is the Bible nowhere tells us where to find this supposedly perfect Greek New Testament. And even among the TR editions, there are differences. Scrivener, who put together the Textus Receptus edition used by nearly all King James-only folks, actually formed it, and you can read his own words on this. I'm not making this up. Uh, He formed it um, sort of as a back translation, as it were, That is, he looked at the decisions the King James translators made and said, this must have been the Greek word they were translating. Turns out they differed from the two Greek New Testament printed editions they used, Biza of 1598 and Stephanus of 1550. They differed quite a number of times. Sometimes they went with Stephanus, sometimes with Biza, sometimes they went against both, dozens of times. So even in the quote-unquote the TR, there are textual critical decisions to make. There just is no way to have the perfect, um, you know, text uh, text of the New Testament. God hasn't given it to us, and so, and, and, okay. So, so that's kind of one phase of my argument. Uh, another phase, and I'll just say this one really briefly, is I think you probably just ought to trust the pastor that God has given you. And I say that knowing that there are people listening to this who have pastors who trust the Textus Receptus and not the critical text. I say fine. If you can't read Greek and Hebrew, then you're not responsible to make the right choice on textual criticism. Follow your God-given elders and pastors. I'm totally fine with that. Um, I would say the same to the pastors. If you were given um, uh, Bible college instructors who told you to use the Texas Receptus, I've got no problem with that. Don't cause division over it, I'd say. Don't be a jerk about it on social media, but by all means, use it and use translations based on it. The Bible doesn't tell us which Greek New Testament to use. It does tell us to use intelligible language. So make sure to use an intelligible English translation of that Texas Receptus if you prefer it. And third third prong of my argument is go look at my site, kjvparallelbible.org. If you are exercised or troubled or fighting or whatever about the differences between Greek New Testaments, I I laid them all out for you with the help of my volunteers in a two-year project that just launched a couple months ago now. It was, um, I put it up on evangelical textual criticism and announced it. it's gotten some good, uh, good feedback and it's totally neutral. 
I'm not trying to push you one way or the other. You can actually look for yourself at the differences between the Greek text underlying the King James New Testament and that underlying the ESV, NIV, CSB, etc. And I think you will see, as I did, two things. The differences are generally excessively minor. Did the star come and stand over baby Jesus, or did it come to rest over him? No Mm -hmm. doctrine is impacted by that. And I think you'll also see something that only my project can show you. And this is what really jumped out at me. Yes, there are differences among these two uh, printed editions of the Greek New Testament, but the similarities vastly outweigh them. There's verse after verse, even chapter after chapter, which are entirely the same. This idea that one is radically corrupt and the other is perfectly pure, you'll see for yourself, it just isn't so. Christians should not be dividing over this, even if they have differences of opinion, and I really think it's okay. They shouldn't be dividing over this. And, 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 we're, and we're just seeking truth, and I really love that. Uh, um, I mean, can you imagine if we did just have one, like, authorized book i mean we would never open it i mean this is just we're we see these things and we have uh nice discussions about it obviously there's scholarly work involved that if somebody wanted to go and uh learn more but um there is the truth out there but uh, i'm just thinking god knew what he was doing when he was doing all this because we wouldn't be sitting in this podcast if if we just have one just soul you know, and I think the the fundamentally important point is simply that there are no core doctrines yeah. that are impacted by these different texts. You know, right. the deity of Christ, mm-hmm. salvation being through faith in Christ alone. And so this forth. is the World Translation Bible. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You mean the New World Translation? The New World. Yeah, the, yeah, the New, new World. The New sorry. World Translation. One I argue, I, I warn people against. Don't use that one. Okay? Yes. No, never. <laughs> we just did a podcast <laughs> with uh, an ex Jehovah's Witness, and we had a field day just kind of talking about that. Anyway, um, but yeah. Um, before we land the plane, we always allow our guests to share the gospel. We know it's not Bible translations that bring people to saving faith, but yes. the message of the gospel. And so uh, if you would please do that, uh, Dr. Ward, uh, the floor is yours. Sure. Of course, you prepared me for this question. So I got to thinking, boy, what do I say? I heard another um, someone else on one of your previous episodes, and I think it's neat that people can give the right answer sort of from different perspectives that is either from a personal one or mm-hmm. of course we, from a scriptural one but i mm-hmm. what can i do i can't do anything but go to first corinthians 15 mm-hmm. now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain for i delivered to you as a first importance what i also received point number 1 that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures so okay It's not just that he died, it's that his death had a significance that has to be told to us, has to be revealed to us. We we could have observed Christ dying and not known that he died for our sins unless it was revealed to us by God. And it was revealed to us in the scriptures. In Luke 22, uh, Jesus is explaining on the road to Emmaus to these two disciples um, that his, his death and resurrection were necessary, according to the Old Testament. Boy, I would have loved to hear that sermon. And, and then there's a subpoint under point number one, that he was buried. 
Okay, so this happened in real space-time history. You don't bury people unless they're dead. And we think we know so much more medically than those people did, but they, I think, knew death better than we do because they had to touch it in ways that we don't. We have hospice and we have um, uh, emergency medical technicians who take care of that sort of stuff for us, morticians. They didn't. They They knew death and they buried this man. And then the second major point of the gospel is that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. Another part of the New Testament tells us that he was raised for our justification. When he was raised, it was not only he that was vindicated, it was also us. If we are in Christ, then we get all the benefits of that death and resurrection. Paul says in Romans, we died with him. We were also raised with him. That's how tight our union with Christ is. And then the supporting point under that second point is that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, once again, we have this empirical verification offered to us that people actually witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. They saw his resurrected body. They saw him walk and talk and eat. And yes, passed through walls, there were differences with, between his body, his glorified body, and ours. And one day we will be resurrected to have that same body. And it's been my privilege to be an evangelist of, of many different sorts. And I loved to give this message. And it boils down to what Jesus said and what John the Baptist said. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and believe this message. And these points delivered in First Corinthians 15 and elsewhere in the New Testament and you will be saved. Wow. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Ward. Where can our audience find you? And I just want to encourage everyone to pick up yourself up a copy of Authorize the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Yeah. Two places right now you can find me easily. One would be my website, byfaithweunderstand.com. And uh, I think the most entertaining place to find me. I did the, this infotainment documentary on the uh, same topic as my book using basically the same arguments. It's the authorized documentary and you can watch it for free on faithlifetv.com if you will sign up for their 14-day free trial. And if that doesn't motivate you, there's actually a lot of other great stuff on there like the Torch Ladder series that my kids have enjoyed. Um, I would encourage people to look to either of those places. Those Torch Lighter series, by the way, are great uh, programs. Yes. Yeah, those are great historical Christian Christian teachings for kids. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ward, it was a pleasure to have you on. We definitely have to have you uh, back on again for another book or for yeah. another topic. Looks like I'll have to write another book then because it was fun for me too. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be awesome. Well, maybe we'll be the first one to review that book. If, if, if Yeah, reach even... out to us first. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> we'll do, we'll, well, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, that wraps up the program for today. If you like Bridge Radio, if you like this podcast, share with your mama, your daddy, your cats and dogs, and everybody, everybody around the world. Yeah, Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are Bridge Ministries. Again, we are a Reformed Christian bookstore teaching ministry and coffee shop and if you really like this uh this podcast please visit our website to just get more information and yeah. please prayerfully also consider supporting us either on a monthly uh, uh on a monthly donation or a one-time gift because this just really allows this this podcast to continue uh we're looking into a new facility we're wanting to do more conferences and bible studies and so much more so those uh those funds would go to really um yeah. benefit that and, and push that forward and and just the the gospel and kingdom outreach 
here in our community and out yeah. into uh, the nations. So, um, anyway, guys, we always end the program with one question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in, in life, life and in death. death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Later. You always say that. Later. I always say later. Later.